so I just want those stories to get told as much as possible. And I know because you're all very humble, uh, self-deprecating, very self-aware people that there's going to be resistance to to celebrating that, and I think we've just got to grow through that. I think we just have to move past that 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 uh, inkling to doubt everything good that God wants to do in our hearts, and we've got to we've got to celebrate the good things that God is doing uh, in this community and in each other. Uh, and so, with that, as we look to what the Lord did in Paul's life, uh, let's just pray, and we'll get started here. So, Father. I just thank you for the work that you're doing, that so much of it is unseen, and a lot of it's messy, and, you know, sometimes it's fabulous, and sometimes it's just like a consistent kindness, and that's all good, and that all gives glory to you. And so, Lord, I just ask that you would continue to be at work in our hearts, God, that we would be shaped by the stories that we read in your book and that we would emulate and live this kind of life that we read about in the scriptures. Father, fill us now with your spirit, speak to us through your word, and encourage us uh, today. And we just ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, starting in verse 20, we already talked a little bit how about how we did it doing this stuff. At once, uh, he, and that's Paul, this is following his conversion that happened, you know, well, we read about it last week, where he got knocked off of his horse, blinded, saw Jesus, and, and this persecutor, this guy who was going house to house, you know, dragging off men and women, maybe even some kids, and throwing them in jail for being part of this Jesus movement, uh, now he goes out and begins to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. And so then... All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. And I think it's interesting here. You know, Paul himself had experienced some power, right? He experienced uh, the power of God and it blinded him. And then he experienced the power of God healing him. But the, the way that he baffled the Jews living in Damascus was that he proved that Jesus was the Messiah. He argued persuasively. He, God used all of that training, all of that depth of, of scholarship and, and skill in interpreting the scriptures that, that Paul had spent a lifetime doing. And I just think that sometimes we, we get too down on tradition. We get too down on institutions. We get too down on the intellectual fruits that happen when believers devote themselves to really answering the questions, to really digging into what does it mean. I think that there's great value in those things, but it, the, the problem I think that we're all reacting to, and I think that many in our, our society are reacting to, is what good does it do if it doesn't help you love anybody? If all, that, if all that study, if all that devotion, if all that intellectual intensity, if all those questions that you ask and answer and, and, and debate and, and care about so deeply, if that just leads you to persecute people, does what you are, is what you're doing adding any value to the world? I think that's a valued, valid question. And the Spirit of God encourages us to love one another, to love those who are in the fringes, to love those who are outside, not to build walls, not to persecute, not to destroy. And so when God is at work in Saul's heart, he goes from being the persecutor to being the persecuted. And oftentimes, 
our, our, our response in following Jesus and saying yes to Jesus will mean that we suffer rather than inflict suffering on others. That it is a giving up of power, an emptying of ourselves, a laying down on the train tracks, accepting whatever happens to us that happens when we decide to say yes to Jesus. We see that at work. And we see, here's where it flips, right? After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. So he's going house to house, putting people in jail, participating in stoning others, and then suddenly uh, he's on the other side of it, right? But Saul learned of their plan, and day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was really a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Well, there's a lot going on here. You know, we kind of just get the, the sort of the aftermath of, of Saul's conversion and, and what he starts to do. And I think that there are a few things that God wants to highlight to us as a community. Oh, hold on. Here we go. This is the good verse, though. I forgot this one. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit and increased in numbers. And I think that it's interesting that, you know, that this gets sandwiched in here right in between persecution, upheaval, all kinds of darkness, all kinds of injustice. And then the church throughout, you know, this whole region uh, enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. It's like a noteworthy thing. It's not the default setting, but it is a noteworthy thing uh, and something that should be appreciated and celebrated, something we should be grateful for whenever we experience. And so that's because of this clash of the ages. And you guys all know that uh, we're living in these in-between times when the kingdom of God is now and not yet. Paul's experiencing the, the full ferment of that, the full torment of this storm. It's like a cold front uh, blowing in on a, on a warm front, and you get a thunderstorm, right, with just all kinds of rain and hail and maybe even tornadoes, thunder, lightning. There's a clash that happens in these, when these two kingdoms mix. And so Paul begins to experience that and the way he experiences that right off the bat is that it costs him something, right? That, that right off the bat for Paul and for many of the early Christian believers to follow Jesus cost them something. That it wasn't just like a freebie being handed out at the mall. It wasn't a, it wasn't a free sample in the grocery aisle, right? Uh, and while we talk about the free gift of God, the salvation offered in Jesus Christ that we don't earn, that isn't something that we you know, gain through our good actions or our good choices. It's totally the grace of God and in, the, and, in, and in the sense that there's no way that we could pay for it or earn it, it is totally free. To say it doesn't cost us something to follow Jesus isn't true. It's just not true. That to follow Jesus requires us to lay down our whole lives, to give up many things, to say no to many things that we want and desire 
in order to say yes to God because that is such a much better yes and the thing that we gain is so much greater and wonderful and glorious compared to what we give up and what we lose. That we lose death and sin and the ways of this world and being part of oppressive systems and, and uh, you know, corrupt desires, that we give those things up to embrace Christ, to embrace a completely holy life, to embrace a life of sacrifice and love for others, to embrace a life where we suffer so that others can be comforted, to embrace a life where we carry our cross so that others may be resurrected. And I don't think that what we gain has any comparison to what we lose. What we, what we lose is, is far less than what we gain. But to say that it costs us nothing, I think, is foolish to believe. I think we see this when we encounter believers who have really suffered for following Jesus. They tend to be the people who make the biggest impact, right? That if we want to be part of something that makes history, uh, a lot of times that comes at a high cost. That, but the casual, uh, the casual Jesus follower who's comfortable uh, and who in many ways conforms to the patterns of this world, um, well, you know, uh, that person doesn't live a very interesting or, or impactful life in many ways. And there isn't a perfect one-to-one ratio, but, but look at the life of Dr. King. To do what he did cost him something. Look at the life of St. Francis. It cost him everything to follow Jesus. Look at the lives of people who you admire, the heroes of the faith. Paul, who wrote one-third of the New Testament, and all the heroes of the early Christian church, it cost them something to follow Jesus. They had to say no to things. It's what made their lives noteworthy. But they were no fools, and, and, the, and the cost that they endured made an impact on the world that we are still feeling and talking about today. I notice this whenever I visit communities that are in places that don't still have these, this kind of vestige of Christendom that we you know, barely are still enjoying, though I do believe that those times are coming to an end, and I see a lot of opportunity in that coming to an end, even here in the Bible Belt, perhaps the buckle of a Bible Belt in Springfield, Missouri. All of culture, even in Springfield, Missouri, is moving post-Christian where we're saying we want the kingdom without the king. And to, to have a king or to believe in any of that spooky, goofy spiritual stuff is just for idiots. That's really the way that culture is swinging. And you feel that when you talk to people, I'm sure. There, I'm sure there are some people who you talk to and they just think, oh, what a, what a goofy Trump-voting idiot that guy is. You know, like it just, <laughs> like if you, if, you, if you come out of the closet as a Christian, you feel it. You feel the stigma. You feel that judgment that people treat you with uh, in some way. And that's the way that culture is going to continue to go. But the opportunity in that future that is, I think, that's the way the wind is blowing, is that it get, we get to live in a time where it costs us something. We get to say no to something so that we can say yes to Jesus. And in that, there's opportunity for God to get glory and for us to operate from our weakness in a way that only God's strength can come through and be present and reveal the character of Christ that 
in the opportunity of being uncool for Jesus, Jesus is glorified. And we see his kindness. We see his faithfulness. We see his willingness to be mistreated, to be bullied, and to do it all in love if we can embrace the way of Jesus in our time and in our place. I remember when I was younger, I uh, had the opportunity to go on what we called a mission trip. I think it was probably more accurately labeled a service trip. And as I think about it now, it really kind of more seems like a little bit of voluntourism, you know, like, like they were finding things for us to do to make us feel like we were contributing. I think we did some good, uh, but, but it was really more about a cross-cultural exchange and, and going to experience a different culture. We went to um, work at an orphanage in Romania. We spent a little time with the kids. We didn't bond with them too much. We were mostly just kind of doing manual labor uh, that they needed, sorting some things out, cleaning some things. I think we even did some, like, farm work, tilling the ground, like just random stuff. But the thing I remember about that experience the most was worshiping with the believers that were part of this community that were supporting this orphanage. And uh, in Romania at that time, to be a Bible-believing Christian was really, really not cool and could maybe even cause you to lose your job because if you're really taking the scriptures seriously and being honest, then that means that you weren't paying bribes. And that means that you were paying taxes, which was really frowned upon, and so then anyone you would do business with would, uh, would, you know, open themselves up to being found out that they were, you know, cooking the books and everything. So, like, so this community that was really trying to live righteously uh, to pay, you know, to pay Caesar and to give to God what was God's and to, to really live out the Christian life in their time and their day and transforming their cities and their villages and their towns these people, it cost them something. It wasn't cool. And it might even mean that they needed to go without work for a while and, and, and be, experience some, at least mild, form of persecution. And so when they gathered to worship, the Spirit of God was just so present in a way that I often don't experience in American churches. This church is excluded, of course. You know, you know, whenever we get together, it's awesome. But, but, but just the fact that it had cost them something changed the way that they worshipped. For them, this wasn't a joke. This wasn't going along with what had been handed to them. There were many things that, that would cause them to resist following in the way of Jesus but they chose it anyway. And that changes the way we relate to God when we step into that, when we say, I will bear the cost and I will go where Christ calls me even if it's expensive or risky or dangerous or doesn't win me the approval of my friends, family, coworkers. Second thing I think that's notable about Paul's journey is that he gets right to work, right? He gets knocked off his horse and, uh, you, you know, healed by Jesus. Life kind of flipped upside down uh, in the turmoil of that, of that advancing uh, warm front into a cold front or however you want to talk about that. That thunderstorm rolls in and, and Paul's life gets totally tossed uh, and he comes up upside down. 
and he gets right to work. He gets right to work letting people know about Jesus and proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Suddenly everything clicks and all that education, all that intelligence, all of that uh, learning and devotion that he had as a Pharisee comes into its right place and he's able to put it to work and service to God uh, in a sacrificial way, giving up his power, giving up his privilege and using what God has given him to serve to serve the poor, to serve the outsider, to serve Gentiles, to serve people who don't know Christ and who are looking for hope in the world. And uh, he gets right to work and, and doesn't waste any time. And the Christian life, I do believe, is something that we learn on the job. It's something that we learn by doing. That, if you will, the, the, the Christian life and following Jesus is not something that can be completely understood from an intellectual standpoint only. In fact, at some point, our intellectual understanding breaks down as we get closer and closer to the mystery of the cross. Why the cross of Christ saves us, we can kind of understand it in the context of this sacrificial system that God seemed to have instituted in, in, in the law and in, in Mosaic uh, law and Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy and all those things. But, but at some point, if you start to ask questions there, then that, that starts to get a little confusing too. And, and there's, there's just, there are limits to what our intellectual understanding on its own uh, can, can wrap its mind around in understanding this story of God at work in the world. And that's true of any intellectual system. That's, a, that's true of any philosophy. Everything's got contradictions. Everything's got weaknesses. You just, you just make peace with the ones that you want to make peace with. But what I think is really true is that when we begin to experience God's presence in worship, when we begin to pray for others and see some level of healing, when we get, begin to minister in the power of the Holy Spirit and to take risks and to see God come into a situation and change it and turn it upside down and people get healed and delivered and freed, when we confess our sins, when we get real about our stuff and ask God to forgive us and receive that love, receive that grace for the stuff that we're humiliated by, from the stuff that we're deeply ashamed of, from the stuff that we don't want to talk to anyone about, much less God that when we get real and we talk to God about those things and we confess our sins, we experience the forgiveness that only comes through Jesus Christ. It's, it's in doing the stuff that we start to understand how it works and what it means. And theology is great. But when we enact it, that's where the, the magic is. Going back to that, that picture, uh, you know, the, our paradigm in the vineyard is not only inaugurated eschatology, which is sort of the shorthand theological $5 words that describe this, right? Eschatology is the end times or the study of the end times or our understanding of the end times. To say that it's inaugurated means that it's already begun in the works and words of Jesus. To say that it's enacted inaugurated eschatology is that we participate in bringing this into this that we participate in bringing that age to come into this present evil age through prayer and through preaching the gospel and demonstrating the love of God in service and in sacrifice and in kindness to our neighbors. 
we get to work when we come to follow Jesus. Finally, Paul also works through his past, and I've already kind of touched on this, but you notice how the believers in Jerusalem don't believe him, right? And this was a problem in the early church. You had people who would kind of act sort of like spies, where they would sort of try to infiltrate uh, these, these startup Jesus movements and then find out what was going on, find out who was involved, and then report them to the various authorities, whether they be pagan or Jewish, and say, uh, you know, this is where they meet, this is where they do their stuff, this is who's involved, this is who's part of it, and, and it's a lot like things that happen in, in Russia or maybe in the United States in the McCarthy area, era or in, in many times in human history where uh, those fringe groups, those fringe ideologies get persecuted by the empire in power. And that was definitely at work in the early Christian church and people... Uh, you know, to, to be part of the church, you kind of had to prove that you were really for real, right? That's a lot of what baptism is about, is saying, I'm publicly all in for this thing. I'll die for this thing. That's what I mean when I go under the water. I'm dead to my old life, and I'm raised with Christ. And, and we see Paul having to kind of work through that in this, in this very early Christian movement, he was one of the persecutors, and so they don't believe him right up front. And he kind of has to suffer and work through his past. He has to work through the consequences of his old life. It's not like you just decide to follow Jesus and then everything that you did stops having an effect on you. That's going to carry in. Our sins will always find a way of catching up with us. And, and at some point, we have to deal with them. Hopefully... In the hands of a gracious God, you can just deal with them with God, and that's the end. But there are many times when, as followers of Jesus, still, or if, if we're pre-Christian or whatever, those things that we did in our past that we're not proud of, that, uh, that hurt others, that hurt ourselves, we have to still deal with them. We can't pretend that they don't exist. Most people won't deal with their stuff until they're forced to. But eventually, it can't be avoided. Usually, sometime in your 30s, those little trajectories in which you're a bit off course come home to roost, and those eggs start to hatch, and the bad fruit starts to become evident of stuff that was kind of cute in your teens or 20s, right? Those little things just piled up over a few decades, they start to become things that we have to deal with. And it's true in all of life, and it continues to be true, that, that those things in our past that we haven't confessed, that we haven't dealt with, we'll have to deal with them eventually. Paul is forced in this story to work through his past, and it's good because he's able to grow past it, and he's able to become a different person, and he's able to change and become the kind of person who changes the world in a positive way rather than changing the world by putting believers in Jesus in jail. So this week, I'm just asking us to keep doing what we've been doing. Try again to do this stuff. And I know some of you guys are saying, oh, Josh, please, come on. Will you let up on this? Will you let up on the awkward asking to pray for people? Will you let up on asking us to be weirdos who pray in the power of the Holy Spirit for healing and, and who believe in prophecy and all this weird, fringe, kooky stuff? Will you just give it a break already? And my answer to you is an emphatic no. 
this is who we are. This is who Jesus is. And if we're going to walk in his way and do the things that he wants us to do, then we have to continue to practice. We have to continue to encourage each other. We have to continue to risk and fail and work through those awkward moments and face our laziness and face our selfishness and face our fear and work through it and encourage each other when we fail and encourage each other when we succeed and just keep trying. So much of what the Christian life is, is faithfulness. And I don't really want to be faithful to anything less than the work of God on earth. I don't really want to give my life and spend the few days that I have on this rock to anything less than pursuing Jesus and everything that he has for my life and for the life of people around me. And so I'm just asking us to try again. Try again to do this stuff. Be the kind of people who say, can I pray for you right now? Work sucks? Ask if you can pray for your coworker. Ask how you can pray for your coworker. Work's difficult? Bring it before God. Ask somebody who you love, who you trust, to pray for you and get healing, get forgiven, get some perspective, get some counsel. Do the stuff. Pray for each other. Ask God to speak to us. Say what you think you hear. Make a mistake. Learn from it. Do it again and again and again. As we practice this, we get better. It's just like anything else. And we have a theology that allows us to fail over and over and over again. And there's grace for that, and there's no shame in that. None. So just try again. Just try again. Second, and this is really where we're at in our community. Just, it's a make it or break it time. Let's, let's be honest. And we've been talking about this over the last eight, nine months, whatever it's been since, since I kind of stepped up here. We need everybody to pitch in. If you're part of this thing, we need what you have. And I understand that margins are thin. I understand there's kids, there's relationships, there's marriages, there's a lack of any of those things. There's, there's jobs. There's a lack of jobs. There's, there's all kinds of reasons and all kinds of distractions and all kinds of things that are very real that constrain us, that make it hard for us to participate fully in the life of a community. I get it. I get it. In the last week and a half, I've kind of just been, I feel like, thrown into this situation. I feel like the Lord's at work in it, and I'm just trying to walk in obedience, but man, I am on fire. My, I'm underwater. I don't know what's going on. My schedule is broken. I just, I thought I was going to sub like one or two days a week, and suddenly I have a full-time job as a first-year teacher in a subject I'm completely unqualified to teach. And I'm pastoring a church. And I know that I've even let some people in this room down in terms of keeping my commitments, and I'm so sorry. I really am. And so when you tell me it's hard, it's hard to be part of this thing, I get it. I really do. But if this is going to happen, this is an all-hands-on-deck moment. We need everybody to pray. We need every person to give. We need every person to invite and serve in whatever way they can. And if you're giving me everything you have and it's not that much, that's all I'm asking. I'm just asking that we all find what we have to give and give that. 
If it's time, it's time. If it's prayer, it's prayer. If it's presence, we need that. We need to show up for each other and support each other. Paul gave what he had to give, and it made a difference. I was reading Thomas Merton earlier this week, and he said, you know, we really underestimate the impact one saint can make in a community because the power of sanctity and the sanctity of one life is greater than the full force of hell that resists it. The light that shines in the darkness will not be overcome. But we have to make those choices. We have to show up. We've got really great planning. We've got really good stuff going on with Chill Between the Thrills. If you can't make it, I'm sorry, but please pray. Pray for the weather. Uh, we do not have a rain plan. We're relying on God to provide that way. We, we need the Lord to show up. And we need God to show up in connections and in those conversations. And, you know, we are not going to uh, advance the kingdom of God through the force of our good ideas, good planning, or good personalities. The kingdom of God advances through the Spirit's work and His power. And so it is time to pray. It is time to pray that we will connect and make those connections. And that in the days and weeks to come, as we serve in our community, as we do a good job at our jobs, as we're you know, celebrating with friends, as we get into the holiday season, to continue to pray and to see the opportunities when we're at parties, when we're at uh, at conferences when we're at things that, uh, that God has led us into, to see those opportunities and to seize them for the kingdom and to really invite people into community and to the table with Jesus so that they can know Christ. I don't want this church to grow for the sake of this church. I want this church to grow so that people can know Christ. I don't want to waste time playing religious games. We can do this. We just all have to patch in. Finally, I'd like to suggest to us, because I have a rebellious streak, Tim has a rebellious streak, we're all Americans. Rebellion is part of our national story. It's our national identity. We are the people who threw off the king and decided to rule ourselves. That's, that's so part of our culture and who we are and how we see ourselves and how we view what makes a person valuable. Independence, that's like the thing that makes a person valuable and interesting, right? That they go their own way, that they do what they want to do when they want to do it. If a person can do that, that person has status, has, is impressive, is uh, worthy of our respect. If, if they are reliant on others to take care of them, or if they're in any way dependent on the state or the care of other people, well, those people are to be pitied and shunned, right? That's very much the spirit of our age. That's very much the water that we swim in, whether we're aware of it or not. But here's the thing. The kingdom of God has a king. 
and we follow that king. And the way we follow that king is we follow other people who are following that king. That's how this is designed to work. Discipleship is the model that Jesus gave the church, and it's the model that has worked at every time of revival, at every time of people coming to God, at every wave of the Spirit's movement, people have submitted to each other in obedience and followed the direction of people and communities who are following Jesus. And so I just want us to suggest that maybe that there might be benefits to not being in charge. There might be benefits to having somebody tell you what to do. I often need somebody to just tell me what to do. There are so many times where in my life I want somebody to tell me what to do. If only someone would tell me what to do, I'm paralyzed by indecision. I'm paralyzed by not being able to uh, know what comes next or what, 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 I I can do to change or improve a situation and I just want somebody to tell me what to do. And my suggestion to us is that it might be possible that, that God could work through that kind of a relationship. That when somebody gives you a suggestion or invites you to try something that's a little scary or uncomfortable or that that tells you, hey, please do this, that maybe, just maybe God's will is to listen to that person. Now, I'm not saying that there haven't been times where that's been abused in the church or in sports teams or in universities or in any kind of human power structure. Any kind of a power structure has the opportunity for abuse. But if you, be- if you trust the person, if you believe the person has your best in mind, if you believe they know something about what they're asking you to do, maybe, just maybe, Following that person is God's will for you. And just not being in charge and doing what we're told could be good for us and good for our souls. It might actually teach us something about following Jesus. 